Hey gang, Christian here with a little bit of pre-pre-roll. We recorded this on Thursday before news dropped about something the president said about other countries, which was quite unfortunate, and maybe more importantly, about people from those countries. Uh, He denied it the next day. Some people contradicted him who were quite credible. It's all, well, it's pretty typical for, for 2018. Um, and so I thought I would record a little something saying we would have talked about that had 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 we known it. Um, but uh, as I sit here editing on Saturday, of course, more news is dropping, including false alarms of, of, of missiles striking Hawaii and scaring people to death. Um, so, you know, it occurs to me that no amount of pre, 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 pre roll could ever get the show up to date these days. Um, the show is going to be outdated in that sense, even Uh, a few minutes after it drops, the way things are going. I guess the other thing I wanted to let you know is that there is a little bit of distortion uh, in parts in our guests' track, and this is just something that occurred on Skype. Uh, I try to mitigate it as best I can. I think it's quite listenable, and our guest is fantastic, uh, but I did want to let you know that that's there. Okay, on with the, well, on with the pre-roll. Here we go. Back in the saddle. Yeah. I feel here, like this, this is a regular episode. Here at World Headquarters. This is a proper episode, I think. Oh, they're all proper. Because well, you know, the last two has just been you and me spinning a yarn. It's been good stuff. It has. I, I enjoy listening to And this. some of our listeners think those are the most proper. Uh, some don't, <laughs> right? That's that's true. Um, so it's all, you know, it's all a matter of taste, I, I suppose. I feel like when we got a really good guest here, to keep us honest, it, um, you know, uh, it, it relies less on, on me. Mm. Um at least you're here. Like, if this were just me, like, if those just you and me episodes were a just me episode, yeah. oh, boy, that would... <laughs> oh, boy. That would... <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thought. I really did enjoy those last two episodes. I listened to they them They were back, great. And I, I think... thought they were really fun. And I think we're going to have another one next week. Oh, are we really? I think we are. That's just the two of us. I think so. And, um, but we got some good things cooking, though. Yeah. Well, there's always some good stuff cooking. <laughs> and th- speaking of good stuff cooking, this was a good one. Very good. So who's our guest this week, Joe? Uh, uh, Bradley Wendell at Cornell, goes by Brad. So mm-hmm. Brad Wendell at Cornell, an ethics uh, professor, a professor uh, who, who teaches and writes in the area, the, the law of lawyering, as some Sometimes called like professional responsibility. Sometimes called professional responsibility, right? Uh, so, yeah. And we, we're, it's, it's a kind of Trump-heavy episode. It is, although the papers are about, uh, are about truth and truthfulness in lawyering and as a lawyering value, as an ethical value for lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of what's happened in the last year, I mean, this is often, I think, the case, but, um, you know, it, n- new administrations get challenged in court in various ways. Yeah. And so the way that the courts process assertions about the legality of executive action, right, um, I mean, that's just par for the course in the United States. That's how things are yeah. now. Um, and and uh, the, tr- the, the role of truth and truthfulness in that process uh, with uh, the current administration, I mean, there have been some significant events yeah. in that space. So that's why I think it winds up being Trump heavy. It's Trump heavy. We also talk about criminal defense and other regimes. So it's a, right. it's, it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with, with Brad. Yeah. Um, I guess a, a little program note here. All the I'm trying to say two things at once, and I'm getting tongue-tied. Okay. You can always get back to us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, mm-hmm. oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, oralargument.org, where we have all the old shows, mm. all the great shows, as they say on 
So <laughs> the whole back important. catalog. The whole back catalog. There's also a list of topics. So if you want to find out, hey, what shows have we done about administrative or, law? Or guests. Or, or you what, can go by guests. There's an entire list of guests complete with photographs. Which is um, awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, we use Dan Benjamin's Fireside as our provider. Oh, nice. I, I want to give a shout out because I think it's just great. It's a great tool. Cool. Everything is there. And you put a lot of work into that. You yeah. you are really, yeah. you've done so much work on the show notes. Yeah. And um, so, this is still, yeah, this it's is really great. This is the second week in a row you've complimented me like this. I think you're just trying to... <laughs> <laughs> Credit where it's due. I you, you do an enormous amount of work on making this show the show as, as awesome as it is, and it is often awesome in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is down to you. So well, I say props to you, dude. Yeah, everybody knows everybody turns in for Joe. But um, so little 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 note about today's show. Mm. So so we do use the word BS a lot in the show. Uh, the, in, the, it, full, the full the word full word in its word. philosophical sense. I'm, I'm only saying that now to let, you know, if like many people, you're listening to this in a car full of kids who have just been clamoring for the latest episode of Oral Argument <laughs> <laughs> and you object to these words, like, you know, we're going to talk about it in its philosophical context, right? Yes. I urge you to expose kids early and often to this word. And, and, its, and its meaning. Right, so that you can teach them about the people who engage in this behavior right. regularly and how to respond to those people yeah. because they're they're not good people. <laughs> and, it's just, and it's just fun to say. Yeah, so so I, just think, I just think, you know, kids should definitely listen, okay. right? And, um, but if you disagree, we're going to say that word. And, you know, yeah. maybe I'm not going to mark the episode explicit or anything because we're using it in its, its proper... It's proper context, so... Yeah, it's not, it's not needless vulgarity. No. It's not just cussing. No. We... One day we will mark the episode explicit and we will engage in needless cursing. Mm. This, this, this will be the Joe Unplugged show. Wow. <laughs> but not I, this I, show. I'm not, I'm not sure I could handle that. I know other people can't handle no. it, I'm, but I'm not sure even I can handle it. Yeah, I, would, I definitely would have to, you know, mess around with the levels and <laughs> to get that one to work. Okay, well, enough goofing around unless there's anything else. You wanted to announce, Joe, any, any personal news, any... Uh, 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 we don't have time for our medical corner or knitting with Joe this week. So any other personal news, though, that you want to get out, now's the time. Otherwise, we're going to go straight to Brad. Let's go. Okay, this is take two. Uh, <laughs> oral argument episode 100 whatever. 100 whatever. What are we on now? I think it's 158. I think this is episode 158. Which okay. Is, which is a lot. 159 plus episode zero. We but just... anyway, you, you were talking before we... Before we broke yeah, but I want to tell Brad that we just had our fourth, uh, the show had its fourth anniversary recently. Wow, congratulations. So yeah, we've been at this for a little while. Yeah, you think, you, you think maybe we'd be better at it by now. <laughs> well, you might think that. <laughs> I, I don't. Legal pioneers in podcasting. Uh, well, yeah. someone's got to do it. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, some, to some level of good. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, was, I was drawn to your paper because it raises questions about uh, role morality and and professional ethics, uh, uh, especially around the importance of truth, uh, that I think are are really important. They're they're important. They have been important for a long time, uh, but they they may be important now more than they have been in the recent past. Uh, in a way that I think many people can appreciate. Um, and and so I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to have someone who has thought about this very carefully. Um, uh, talk with us about about these issues of role morality around truth, lawyering and truth, um, and uh, lawyers' responsibilities. But but very quickly, it be- also becomes, as I think the truthfulness paper and 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 in a way also the Sally Yates paper, um, it's a citizen's responsibility. It's not just a, a lawyer's responsibility um, to to figure out uh, the importance of truth and and 
and keep it as a lodestar in one's conduct. At least that's one way to think about what the paper's about. So, so Christian, do you ha- what what question can we start? I, with? I want to throw it over to to Brad and, and just you know I. I think I know what inspired you to write the, to write these papers. I mean, obviously they're inspired by by current events, but um, and we're gonna. There's another term for other than lie, which is at work here, and that's the the the, the neo philosophical term uh, bullshit, right? Mm, which right. is the uh, a, a, which is another attitude toward toward truth and one's responsibility to right. to others. And um, so, Brad, I just want you to kind of take it away and tell us like. Whether, whether this is a continuation of earlier work in a new setting or, or whether you were inspired to think about new things in new ways because of kind of Trump mania and and the truth under assault, if you like. Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of both of those things, actually. I've, I've written about lawyer role morality pretty much my whole career. That's mostly what I do. And I've written a little bit about truthfulness in advocacy as well. One of the critiques of, of my 2010 book about lawyer role morality was I talk a lot about law, but not much about facts. And so I wrote a paper about truthfulness in uh, in lawyering. And I'm a former civil litigator. And so I, I think about this stuff a lot. I've, I've always kind of had this in the background. And then along comes November 2016. And, you know, I engaged in kind of a process of therapy by writing and wrote a long paper on the duties of government lawyers and how they might be challenged in the Trump administration. And and then got this invitation to this conference at Duquesne on on truth and the revival of the concept of truth, which sounds pretty grandiose. But I thought, <laughs> yeah, I could write something about that. Um, and I had just happened to have reread a paper by one of my favorite philosophers, Bernard Williams, making a point about the relationship between ethical ideals and truth. And I said, OK, well, I'll organize my paper around that. But I brought the role morality stuff in. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's something kind of deeply ironic going on here. And that is that lawyers have long been criticized as liars or bullshitters. And I'll talk in a second about this concept of bullshit. And lawyers always come in for a lot of criticism for this. But in the current environment, it's actually the legal profession, which is doing a a fair bit of work in enforcing ideals of truthfulness, which is what Williams calls a form of life, which is aimed at finding out the truth. This profession, which is through you know, decades, gotten a lot of stick for being not attentive to the virtues of truthfulness actually is one of our safeguards in these times. So I find that kind of interesting and ironic. On the bullshit point, this is uh, something that Harry Frankfurt must be thanking himself for every day (laughs) he wrote this paper. And uh, this book came out, he wrote a paper just kind of as a goof in the 80s and 90s when academic postmodernism was very fashionable and people were talking about it a lot. And I, I came up during that time. So I remember all of the talk about deconstruction and nihilism and the Alan Sokol hoax and all that stuff. So Frankfurt wrote this paper distinguishing between lying and bullshit, basically on the grounds that a liar uh, is someone who inadvertently or indirectly pays respect to the truth. Because if you're going to mislead someone, if you're going to lie about something, you have to have the truth of the matter in view in order to be an effective liar. Actually, you're in some ways paying respect to the truth as, as a liar. But a bullshitter is someone who just is indifferent to the truth and who doesn't even have a concept of truth in view. And, and usually they have some other aim or agenda. Um, and Trump is an interesting subset of bullshitters in that he doesn't really even seem to have an agenda other than kind of self-aggrandizement. This is not some uh, way of obfuscating his his actual goals. He may have some policy goals, but they're pretty minimal. Uh, it's mostly just appearing great and strong and famous and being in the news all the time. I'm not the only person to have repurposed the concept of bullshit to apply to Trump. It's been cited a lot. But 
Um, I remember reading that paper in graduate school and, and thinking it was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Princeton University Press published it as a book a few years ago, and it's now at bookstores in the gift books section, I'm sure. <laughs> Many people's Christmas stockings this year. Frankfurt is a brilliant philosopher. It's well-written. It's a lot of fun. But but it's also like a, it's a terrifically insightful distinction to make that can affect our our attitudes and evaluations of, of public figures who who you might you know have lumped entirely under the category of liar, but distinguishing between the liar, the person who's intentionally trying to get you ad- to adopt a state of mind or an attitude toward things which is which the liar knows is non factual or false, and and the bullshitter who who's just carrying on like a bull in a china shop, like right. <laughs> you know without regard to truth. That that, that you know th- they present different problems in the public sphere. I think and, and law focuses a lot more. My my sense is that law focuses a lot more on lying than on bullshit. The crimes that relate to dishonesty, um, you know, fraud and, and the like, uh, the person committing them really does want you to believe what they're saying. Like it, it's it's critical to their fraud that you believe them, rely on it and do something to their benefit and your detriment in that sense. It's, right. it's very much not bullshit. They really do need to be persuaded. Bernie Madoff was not a bullshitter. That's right. And, 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 the, and the law seems to focus more on deceptions that are uh, like hypocrisy, the the tribute that uh, uh, vice pays to virtue, that you really are trying to appear real. And, and in like the greatest like political crimes you can think of, there were the b- greatest political tragedies of the t- of the 20th century, for example. Like it, it's it's the politician and the system trying to get you to feel a certain way about the system or about others in the political community. And it seems it seems like in that project, it might be irrelevant whether you, whether the thing that you're saying in order to get them to feel that way is the truth in whatever sense we mean by the truth or is not the truth. What matters is how your words and your imagery moves the people that are hearing it. And I wonder if like in the New York real estate community or mm. the community within with, within which Trump, like machismo and ego and like projecting power are not just like a carrier signal for statements which have truth value, but are the entire signal. The medium is the message, right? Right, right. I think that's right. And I think it's significant that he came up through that community and then resurfaced again in public life as a reality show star. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And I remember Donald Trump in his incarnation as a flamboyant real estate host. And I remember when The Apprentice came out, I thought, huh, somebody gave Donald Trump a TV show? That's kind of weird. <laughs> and, and then he, he really learned the persona of the reality show uh, character pretty well. And I think the medium is the message in that case. To your point that the law focuses on lying and not bullshit, I think it's exactly right. My major area of law is the law of lawyering, um, sometimes called legal ethics. And there are lots and lots of rules that talk about knowing falsehoods. So Rule 3.3 on, on witness perjury requires a lawyer to take remedial measures if the lawyer comes to know that a witness statement is false. And the word knowledge is really important. It means actual knowledge. And and there are tons of cases, especially in the criminal defense context, talking about what it means to actually know something is false and thus have remedial obligations. And so there's always this idea that the truth is in view somewhere. It might be ambiguous or obscure, but there is a thing out there called the truth. I don't think there's a lot of legal regulation of indifference to truth. Mm. And one of the things that I really found surprising about the immigration order decisions that came down against Trump, especially on the second version of the order, which went up to the Fourth Circuit, is that courts were having to fashion this new law for review of executive action um, by a bullshitter. And, you know, there's a standard, there's a case called Kleindienst versus uh, Mandel, 
And it says that if the president gives a facially neutral and bona fide reason, facially legitimate and bona fide reason for excluding a class of aliens, he has the authority under the statute and also the inherent authority to do so. And facially neutral or legitimate and bona fide, that's pretty broad. And that includes something like this country is a state sponsor of terrorism. That's facially legitimate and bona fide. And yet you had a federal appellate court saying, we don't think these justifications are legitimate. Whoa, what's going on? <laughs> um, and, I, and I think the concept of bullshit is pretty helpful here. The court thought that the justification was not a lie, but it was just completely made up. It was fanciful. He wanted to do this because he had promised to do it. And there's no relationship between his actions and the reasons given in support. And that really is a novel kind of misconduct that I don't think the law really deals with that frequently. Yeah, that's that's one thing that occurred to me, especially as as Joe was talking about the piece that I didn't zero in on the same way when I was reading it, that maybe this isn't so, but it seems to me that the law generally models human beings as taking an attitude toward the truth value of the things that they say. Right. Right. And it is not prepared to deal with an entity like Trump who doesn't appear to take such an attitude on a statement by statement basis at all. If any of us do, I think that that model may be actually too too generous to human evaluative capacities in general. But certainly someone like Trump, who appears to take no evaluative attitude toward the truth value of his statements most of the time, it's just like it's a square peg round hole problem with the law. Whereas what's interesting is that his persona maybe is, is, it may be the exception in American politics. You compare in the paper at one point, uh, Trump to uh, Clinton and Nixon, with who told kind of discreet lies for particular purposes and undoubtedly had particular attitudes toward those statements. But maybe Trump is not out of the ordinary when you look at a broader range of, eh, let's just say, thuggish authoritarians around the globe, whether or not you th- whether or not you think he is. But certainly he's not the only world leader in the 20th and 21st century to be blustery and say a bunch of stuff without regard to truth at all. Right. Well, you know, not just world leaders. I, I don't know if he models himself on thuggish authoritarians so much, although he does seem to admire them like Duarte and, and Putin. But I think he models himself on entertainers. And, you know, just recently he gave that uh, he gave press access to that cabinet meeting. And afterwards, he bragged about his ratings. You know, I think he's failed to make the transition from entertainment to governing. And I think he measures himself by the metric of how does the audience feel? Have I created dramatic tension? Is this exciting? Um, how are the ratings? Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre metric. But I, I want to go back to your point about the implicit psychology that law assumes about human beings. I, I hadn't thought about that. And it sounds like actually quite an interesting research agenda for somebody who wants to take on a, a new project and, and look at the, the criminal law and you know, legal ethics rules and all sorts of things that govern various kinds of deceptive and untruthful practices. And it, it sounds right to me that there is a tacit psychology presupposed by the law, which is that people are capable of responding to empirical reality and assessing things for their truthfulness and making claims that are truth functional in some way. And that does seem to be the tacit psychology of the law. And, you know, Trump is a real challenge to that. I I think I cited in this paper, or if not, I did in the talk when I gave it, you know, the old Colbert concept of truthiness. Yeah, you did. It's different than, than truth functional statements in that it kind of feels right. It's more affective. And I think the difference between the entertainment medium and politics is that entertainment is often primarily affective. And Trump is a master at that. You know, he's his his peculiar kind of genius is making people feel a certain way. Build the wall, lock her up, and people go, rah! Right. And that's emotional persuasion. It's not rational persuasion. And it's a really interesting point that you raise that the law may not be geared to deal with that kind of 
attempt at persuasion or or acting in a way that isn't truth functional, but is more truthy, truthy functional. The thing about the truthiness episode, uh, the, this is the very first episode of the Colbert Report. You know, I remember watching it and wondering, could this guy possibly keep this up? This seems, <laughs> He's you know, character for the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, okay, maybe one or two shows because this is amazing, <laughs> but there's no way that he can maintain this and, and some, somehow he did because he's a genius. But yep, he's, he's good, yeah. Yeah, the, the, but the, the idea of truthiness, as you said, right, is that it's this thing which feels true and therefore is more important than the truth for someone like Colbert's character. And then you combine that with the fact that Colbert's character was uh, was intended to be and was an idiot, right? And and something that feels true in, to an idiot is oftentimes obviously not true. But I wonder if with, with someone like Trump, or at least the way we're talking about, I don't want to be too unfair and put him on the couch or whatever, but we can talk about this at least in the abstract, that maybe it's even beyond truthiness because it's not stuff that feels true. It's stuff that makes him feel powerful. Right. This may be more accurate of describing the way a four year old's attitude toward the truth than than anyone else's. But it seems a little bit different. Right. To You know, you can you can make an assertion that that feels true and that's truthy. But to say something with without regard to the truth at all or even something's feeling like the truth, but just an attitude toward I'm going to say this because it feels right in the moment, not feels true in the moment but feels good in the moment. There's something odd, though, about the presidency, and and that is that w- which complicates what you just said. I think there's what you just said had a lot of wisdom in it, uh, observing his behavior. But there's something quite complicated about the presidency, which is that it makes lots of things true by virtue of having said it. Uh, the president, ha- as an actor in governance, right, has special responsibilities. Uh, uh, Brad already mentioned one about you know, saying, well, people who might come to the United States from this country represent a, a, a problem for the interests of the United States. That's a thing the president makes true under that statute by declaring it to be so, right? Well, now, that doesn't mean it's not subject to some sort of evaluation, but at least as a first pass, right, the president makes things true by saying them. Uh, uh, Joe Arpaio was pardoned because he was said to be pardoned in an utterance by that person, right? So the the office of the presidency has this truth-creating ability associated with its powers, some of them anyway. Does it create the truth? Brad, you didn't, I don't remember you were dealing with this in the paper, but does it do what Joe said, create truth? Or the way I would think about it is that sometimes a president will say things which are part speech act and part assertion. The assertion part has a truth value. The speech act does not have a truth value. It is an act, which then you can make statements about that are true or false. Like you can make statements about a prior speech act, which are true or false. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I I don't know. There's a simultaneity there. I think that's right. I think the Joe Arpaio case, I think the president does have the power to do certain things by fiat and pardoning is, is one of those things. The other example of making a statement about classes of aliens being detrimental to the national security interests of the United States, it, I think traditionally has been viewed that the president has really quite significant power to declare something to be true. And then it is true exactly as you said. But this Fourth Circuit decision on the immigration order suggests that there's an implicit constraint, which we never noticed because no president ever would have done this. But the implicit constraint is that that declaration has to be based on reasons. It has to be based on you know a, a thought process and the sorts of considerations that would normally go into warranting that sort of conclusion. And, and all prior presidents have done that, in part because they have a process for doing it. They have interagency review and they have staff and they uh, get advice before they just say stuff. 
and, and Trump actually is providing a valuable service in exposing a lot of things that we uh, never really had to think about before and making us think about it. And you know, now it turns out that a lot of the deference to the executive branch is based on the assumption that the executive branch is going to act in an orderly and reasoned way. And, and, and you know, Trump, who's just so capricious, you know, this morning he was tweeting something in error based on something he watched on Fox and Friends. And he's just so completely arbitrary and capricious that courts are starting to say, well, well, hang on a second. We can't just defer to that statement because it isn't based on reasons. And you really do see that in the Fourth Circuit order. And if you compare that with the, the Ninth Circuit, the the decision on denial of on banc review and, and Judge Bybee's opinion there, you know, Judge Bybee really stated the traditional view, which is, look, facially legitimate means facial. If it says these countries are sponsors of terrorism, you don't, you don't peek behind the curtain. But the Fourth Circuit peeked behind the curtain and found out that there's no there there. And that's kind of fascinating, actually. The deference requires a reason-giving process. And and Trump seems incapable of doing that in some cases. It's not just reasons, though, right? Because his lawyers are there giving reasons. The, the, not his lawyers. The lawyers of the United States are there giving reasons, Justice Department lawyers. So it's something, I mean, where do you fit? I mean, we could talk in specific about Kleindienst against Mandel, but or or just more generally about you know where you fit this inquiry because it seems to me to be about whether or not the assertions are being made in good faith, right? I, I put it in the box of facially uh, neutral or legitimate and in good faith. Well, what does being in good faith mean? And part of what it might mean is not just surrounded by a storm of bullshit, which is what his statements are, right? Is there's there's this barrage of bullshit. Uh, so, uh, uh, using the philosophical definition, which sort of surrounds so much of what he says and does. Is is that the right place to put it? Or or what do you think about that? I'm notoriously bad at predicting the future. Um, I didn't think <laughs> that would be a thing. Um, so, you know, don't, don't take this to the bank. But I actually think the Supreme Court is going to reverse the, the Fourth Circuit, or I forget the posture exactly that the third order is now in. It seems to me that the, the right resolution of this has to be that if there is an objectively reasonable basis for the the president's assertion about national security, whether it's provided by lawyers or or staff or whatever, then that's sufficient to justify the assertion of executive power, that it doesn't have to be the president's actual subjective reason. You know, there are tons and tons of cases saying we're not going to psychoanalyze government actors. And, and I think that's got to be right. It's just that you know, Trump has displayed his psychology for all the world to see. And it's so tempting to, to go off and use his tweets or his, his statements about things as, as evidence that he's not acting in good faith. Good faith has to mean something like rule 11 good faith, which is, you know, is there an objectively reasonable basis in law and fact? And, and the statement that, you know, Libya and Sudan and these countries are sponsors of terrorism has you know, got to be factually, objectively reasonable. So it seems to me this, the Supreme Court's going to go that way. But actually, when the first travel ban came down, I was loudly proclaiming, look, I hate this guy. I think he's acting you know, in a really malicious way, but he's got the power to do this. There's no question. I don't really see where these injunctions are all coming from. And then I was surprised on Order 1.0 and Order 2.0. Um, so I think courts are dealing with a fairly novel landscape. As you said, the barrage of bullshit is challenging them in interesting ways. But I have a feeling that when the dust settles, it'll be on something like an objective standard of reasonableness. I, mean, I don't know if the dust is ever going to settle. Exactly. Maybe we could circle back to another context that you mentioned in the paper. And this is um, the the context of a criminal defense lawyer who knows that his client 
is guilty. Uh, I forget the example that you use exactly of that. Uh, there's there's one that you use. I mean, I think maybe the shoplifting example. Yeah, was, yeah, it's a, a famous debate in legal ethics, the Mitchell Subin debate. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the issue is, you know, that the client tells the the lawyer or the lawyer otherwise knows that the client, in fact, intended to carry the item out of the store without paying for it, but nonetheless puts the government to its proof by suggesting holes in the government's proof and 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 basically inviting the jury to make inferences that the lawyer knows to be false. And and I guess the point of this is that in everyday life, if I suggestively say things in a way which invites you to make an inference I know is false, we have a very hard time distinguishing that from from actual lying. Um, because the my my mental intent is the same, you know, it's to, to induce in you a belief that I know is false. And and we would you know most of us would call that morally wrong in most situations. But in the legal situation where we otherwise say that, that lawyers who knowingly lie in, in court have done a, a grievous wrong to the system, we do allow them to put the government to its proof in these, in these um, contexts. We do allow them to, to make arguments which invite false inferences so long as they don't make false statements. And the device for kind of thinking about that, that at least as I read about in your paper, and I know uh, legal ethics folks have thought about this a lot, is the distinction between... Uh, legal guilt and factual guilt. Like there's the there's the uh, the legal factual world, which has some analogies to the poker game that you otherwise talk about in the in the in the paper. And then there's the factual factual world, the one that the lawyer actually knows about. <laughs> so I wonder. In and I, I was thinking about this when you guys were talking about um, the president's saying things, uh, making assertions about the world, which are then taken as true. It's kind of the same thing, right? Where the president makes a statement and. If the president has the power to set policy, then that statement creates a certain kind of political truth, even if like it's contestable. Uh, just like the the legal guilt of the of the criminal defendant is certainly contestable, uh, even um, as the jury makes a kind of definitive judgment on that uh, uh, on that fact. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's you know this is why role morality had to come up in the paper. Uh, you know, I, I write about role morality so much I can imagine. Not that I probably have dedicated readers out there, but somebody who's read anything else by me and goes, ah, crime, and here we go, role morality again. (laughs) I'll give you the example of the legal guilt thing that I often use when I teach this stuff. And I've I've taught these seminars to undergrads who are not law students, so they're presumably closer to kind of ordinary folks' morality than than lawyers who are contaminated by law school. Uh, It's a real case. It's actually an, an opinion, an ethics opinion from the Michigan State Bar from, you know, a while ago. Defendant comes into a criminal defense lawyer and says, I did it. Uh, I, I mugged a guy at 2 a.m., hit him over the head with a lead pipe, stole his wallet and his watch. I did it. I'm guilty. Um, the, the victim since went off to the cops and because his watch was stolen and he had been hit over the head with a lead pipe, told the cops that he was mugged at midnight. The defendant at midnight, in fact, was uh, playing cards with a priest, a rabbi, and the Dalai Lama, uh, all of whom will testify at trial that he, they were playing cards with the defendant at midnight. And the, this defense lawyer wrote into the Michigan State Bar saying, can I put these guys on the stand uh, and, and have them testify that he was playing poker with the defendant at midnight, and then argue in closing, say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that you've heard the victim say that he was mugged at 2 a.m. Uh, you've heard the testimony of the priest, the rabbi, and the Dalai Lama that... Uh, uh, that he or at midnight that he was playing poker at midnight has the state proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt? I have yet to meet a lawyer who has the slightest problem with doing that. 
Right. Sometimes you can get non-lawyers to go, yeah, it's deceptive. It's arguing for a false. Lawyers have not the slightest problem with that. And, you know, the, the device for explaining that is this distinction between procedural guilt and legal guilt or court truth and real truth or whatever. And lawyers are very comfortable with the idea that there's a distinction between what is true about the world. Uh, did this guy do the crime versus what does a party with a burden of persuasion have the ability to prove based on the evidence in the record? And lawyers are super comfortable with this. And, uh, you know, one thing I find being a law faculty member dealing with people elsewhere in the university is that not everybody is as comfortable with procedures and burdens of proof and things like that as lawyers are. What do the undergrads say, by the way? The undergrads all go, you know, that's got to be okay because I know lawyers do it all the time. One year I had my, <laughs> I had my students come up with a, what, what I call literally true but misleading statement and give examples from their own personal life. And I collected them and some of them are fantastic. So one of them was a student who his mom had said, did you, did you take out the trash tonight? That was his chore. Um, and he said, the garbage can is on the curb out front. In fact, he had threatened to beat up his little brother if his little brother didn't take out the trash. He didn't take out the trash. He gave an answer that was literally true. The trash can is on the curb, but misleading to the mom. And I said, what would your mom do if she found out that you threatened to beat up your brother? And that's why the trash was out there. And he said, well, she'd be pissed off. And I said, would she be pissed off just because you threatened to beat up your brother or because <laughs> you lied? And, and she said, and he said, no, no, it would be because it was a lie. So they recognize that literally true statements can be a lie if they're misleading. And look, we all live through the Clinton era of, you know, it depends on what is, is, and I did not have sex with that woman. And, and everyone thought that he was slippery. People have no problem forming the concept of a literally true but misleading statement and calling it in some contexts deceptive and wrong. But yet we all accept that lawyers can do something like the poker game case, you know, put on the three friends and say that they were playing poker at midnight. Um, and that has to be because we see some moral value in a system in which we allocate burdens of proof and we we put parties to their proof. And, you know, and you can usually get people, even undergrads, pretty easily to see that it has to do with protecting people against arbitrary power and making sure that the state is kind of checked, treating people fairly, giving them an opportunity to tell their story, but also to protect the privilege against self-incrimination if they don't want to testify. There are all sorts of reasons, and there, there are kind of political moral reasons standing behind them. It's not arbitrary. But that those reasons kind of bridge these two domains of, of legal truth and, and factual truth. And as long as you have that kind of story you can tell, then you can work in this separate moral, morally differentiated domain and not be doing something that's at odds with ordinary morality. But it seems to me these these um, these rationales, these these purposes, you know, uh, the purpose of putting the government to its proof in order to maintain individual freedom and, and protect people from overbearing state power, right, and arbitrary arrest and detention. You can, you can draw out, like, some, some pretty uh, descriptive policies that lead us to say that the defense lawyer can act that way in that situation, whereas I think we would have very different intuitions if the prosecution knew for sure that the person they were prosecuting was innocent and and said, well, if a jury convicts beyond a reasonable doubt, then the person is legally guilty, despite the fact that I know that they're factually not guilty, and they raise inferences, uh, they, they present evidence in a way that raises such inferences too. So I think, you know, so it's not as though I think that there just is this zone of talk, like there is in the poker game where all sides can bluff, right? right? Yeah. How does this cash out in civil litigation? 
because um, you know civil we, we lawyers. We view the parties on being yeah. more on an even keel. Are the plaintiff and the defendant in the same position? Are either of them in the same deficient position as the defense counsel or or the or the prosecutor? It seems to me that these roles are very specific. It's not just role of a lawyer; it's role mm. as a defense counsel. Right. And I think this is all relevant back tying to the. Um, uh, to the political system because, you know, the president may have a very different role than, say, Sally Yates did. There's a, there's kind of a specificity generality issue here, too. Yeah, there's a granularity to roles. So the, there is a basic duty for prosecutors to refrain from prosecuting a case they know not to be supported by probable cause. That's a very under-enforced disciplinary rule, but it's in the rules of conduct and, and it's in the U.S. Attorney's Manual and um, various guidelines for prosecutors. Civil litigators are different from criminal defense lawyers, are different in a lot of ways. There are perjury cases that come out with different results for civil litigators than for criminal defense lawyers. And one of the things that I've battled my whole career in legal ethics is this overgeneralization from the criminal defense paradigm. Right. You know, we, we, we see the plausibility of the criminal defense lawyer's role, and then we stick a label on it. We call it you know, zealous advocacy within the bounds of the law, or being a champion, or being an advocate, or whatever. And then transpose that into every imaginable lawyering situation without attending to contextual differences. One of the things that drives me crazy is when there's a case like, you know, the Enron transactions and the lawyer's involvement in that. And you say to the the, the corporate and transactional lawyers, you know, how come you did that? And they go, zealous advocacy within the bounds of the law. And go, well, hang on a second. You're not an advocate in any meaningful sense here. And this is back to y'all's point that you've both made about you can make the truth by just doing it. Um, transactional lawyers create the law, basically. They look at a, a deal and they say, this is this complies with all the applicable requirements. And there may be a third party opinion letter or something, but they may just be giving advice to their client that you can do this. And, and in some ways, they're private lawgivers. And the scope of their duties with respect to truth and fidelity to law and all sorts of other things just has to be different than criminal defense lawyers. And so I've been arguing forever that there's a kind of an overarching lawyer professional obligation called fidelity to law. But within that, there are a, a whole differentiation of roles, criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, civil litigators, lawyers acting in a counseling and advising and compliance capacity. These are all very different. And um, you know, for the most part, the law governing lawyers tracks that normative distinction that you were talking about that, you know, I can cite you perjury cases coming out differently for civil lawyers and criminal defense lawyers. There are different standards of truthfulness in securities transactions than in the criminal defense lawyering context. So wh what you suggested about a more granular conception of the role is exactly how the law you know, more or less plays out. Well, it's interesting, though, that we put ourselves on a little bit of a tightrope because by by allowing criminal defense lawyers to, in the name of, and I, I don't mean to suggest it's it's fake, I think it's real, right? In the name of putting the state to its process of proof uh, or to its proof, that's a way of preventing arbitrary state power, right? But but as you, I think, give a pretty good account of in, in your paper, usually untruth is think something that makes arbitrary state power much more likely to occur, not less likely to occur, right? So it, uh, although it, it allowing a criminal defense lawyer to uh, put before the jury the idea that one of the inferences that's consistent with all the known evidence is an inference of not guilt. And once that's true, and it's a reasonable inference of not guilt, they're, they're duty bound to acquit, right? In all these other instances, B suggesting inferences of, of things we know to be false is is actually going to make arbitrary state power more likely, not less likely. So well, we've really we created a little bit of a paradox, not maybe not a paradox, a, a real danger of this slipshod extension. 
I don't think it's a paradox. I actually think, but I think you're onto something really important. And I think the non-paradoxical reading of this is is helpful. So if untruth makes arbitrary power, take take state out for a second, if untruth makes arbitrary power more likely to occur, um, then to say to a criminal defense lawyer, you don't have the same obligations of truthfulness as a prosecutor does, is basically to say, you don't have the same responsibility as a prosecutor does, because we all know from Spider-Man that with power comes responsibility. <laughs> to free the prosecutor of, sorry, the criminal defense lawyer of that responsibility is to say, you don't have any obligation to kind of find out the truth. And in doing so, we're going to give you greater latitude to represent your client and be able to do more on behalf of your client than you would be otherwise able to if you had a responsibility to the truth. Um, You know, you could imagine a legal profession, American lawyers would recoil in horror, but you could imagine a legal profession in which you had an obligation to only represent clients that you believe to be factually innocent of the charges and you had to turn over uh, inculpatory evidence to the cops. And, you know, you could imagine that those would be robust responsibilities toward the truth. But we relieve lawyers in our system of that responsibility, and that gives them more power. There is a real connection. And this is something I tried to get at later in the paper. I don't know if I did it really well. Um, I think it's a connection between the rule of law and its virtues. Um, which are limiting arbitrary power, uh, and the obligations vis-a-vis truthfulness, that the requirements of reason-giving and following procedures and the kind of checking procedures that we employ to ensure that we're getting the truth right actually also has the virtue of limiting power. Well, how about this, though? So, Because I do think that people who are convicted of crimes and otherwise at the sharp end of the governmental stick don't always enjoy the benefits of the legal truth world rather than factual truth world. I'm, I'm reminded of Scalia's, uh, I forget which case it was, defending uh, defending the idea that you shouldn't necessarily be able to bring a factual innocence claim in habeas, even if you're subject to the death penalty, because you've been adjudged guilty, right? And so you were legally guilty regardless of the facts, right? Which seems, you know, I, I bet if you asked people who were com- comfortable with legal truth uh, as kind of excusing defense lawyers' uh, um, uh, ability to put the state to its truth. They're comfortable with that. They may be a lot less comfortable with the idea of, of putting someone who is factually innocent to, to death, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to think about here is the legal truth world as against um, factual truth world. I think it's, here's what I'm, uh, here's what I'm trying to figure out, Brad and, and, and Christian. It, I see the value for the criminal defense context of the distinction between legal truth and factual truth. I think it's important. But how do you cabin that in a really effective way, given that I also see the importance in in all the other contexts, both legal and political, yeah. of preserving factual truth as as of critical importance because in the absence of it, the very social project starts to become – the very possibility of social life really comes under some degree of attack or at least undermining – Influence. So, how do you how do you cabin the one and hold up the other? Well, and let me just kind of come back to what I was trying to, the way I was trying to conceptualize this because I think it, it it's married to this in a, in a way. And and that's that like in a world where you, you're just never going to have a, a an account of factual world that everybody agrees with, 
like because there are unknowns, uncertainties, there may be, even be different perspectives. We could get into the philosophy of the truth if we want to. But even without going that far, there's just some things you're not going to know because of, of certainty um, issues, you know, the, like, epistemological problems. So we create legal world, right? Legal, legal factual world. And we do it through certain procedures and we allow things to flow from uh, consequences to flow from the, the official account created in legal factual world. And then everyone is arguing over how do we build that official account in legal factual world. It seems obvious that you would allow people to contribute to that official account in ways that protect against abuse of state power, that recognize states' interest in finality. You know, there are all these different uh, uh, sorts of policies which impinge on our ability to create this official account, which is one thing we do in legal factual world, right? I, I take it from what you're saying, Joe, and maybe I didn't get this exactly right. The impulses that lead you to allow conduct with respect to the truth that you wouldn't tolerate outside of that specific context, like how do you keep those in that context? Is that part of what you're saying? Like how do you keep those techniques for building that official account in that kind of normative area? Yeah, if I really do want to have both. Because we do the same thing in political world, right? There's like political factual world, which is, well, I I don't, maybe I'll stop there. Well, no, I think there's a lot going on and I've actually been frantically writing as you were talking, and I have a diagram with arrows everywhere. And I was <laughs> so something you said earlier is almost exactly the reason why I latched on to Bernard Williams in this paper. So the question is, we recognize the importance of preserving factual truth, but we also realize that we can disagree about what truth is. And, and one of Williams' points in, in Truth and Truthfulness, and also in this paper, St. Just's Illusion, uh, you know, and Williams is a veteran of these fights over postmodernism and, and everything as well. Um, one of his points is that it's easy to get bogged down in uh, philosophical questions or epistemological questions about objectivity and miss the ethical significance of of, the, of practices or of truthfulness. And so the book is called Truth and Truthfulness, and he wants to relate those two things, truth and practices of or forms of life um, that take truth as a regulative ideal. And so I like this idea that you have, which is that we've created this thing called legal factual world and consequences flow from it into the real world. People can get imprisoned or executed or have their property taken away or whatever. And there are all sorts of policies that go into the construction of legal factual world, things like finality and and burdens of proof. Um, And what I think is interesting, and this is the irony I referred to earlier, is that the standard way of thinking about lawyer role morality is that Legal factual world is one in which there's less concern with actual, in fact, what the truth is, real world truth, and therefore it's more likely that injustices will occur. So there seems to be an assumption that professional ethics and professional role differentiated morality can lead to injustices precisely because there's a departure from what is factually true. Um, But what is happening in Trump land right now is that the legal process, with all of its emphasis on procedures and burdens of proof and standards of review and all of that good stuff, is actually keeping us from going off the rails uh, with regard to justice and respect for rights and, and things like that. Trump is trying to create not legal factual world, but you know Trump world. <laughs> Everything he says is true just because he says it. And he's trying to create another role-differentiated sphere, but other institutions in society as well as just kind of ordinary standards of truth and ethics, are pushing back and saying, no, 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 we don't think Trump world actually is such that consequences should flow from it. Just because you say something doesn't mean that 
things will happen in the world in accordance with that statement. Um, whereas legal factual world still operates by the rules that it's always operated under. And it turns out it's doing a lot of useful work. And I forget whether I got this from, from you or from Williams, but, but one of the things that I inferred was that the, the standard for the kind of accept, well, the standard for legal factual world and whether it's any good or not is whether we accept it. Right. In a world of disputed truth and disputed perceptions of the truth, like we're trying to build a, a, a an official account of what happened that, that everyone agrees could be flawed. But we're all willing to accept because you got to stop somewhere and there ha- we have there have to be consequences. And the interesting thing about Trump world, as you as you characterize it, right, is that as that comes into the legal factual world, we realize the tools that we have, the, the roles that we have for for creating that official account are creating somewhat ridiculous accounts because like everybody knows it's anti-Muslim bias, which led to a travel ban 1.0 and 2.0. And yet all of our official tools for creating official accounts, you know, they don't enable us to create an acceptable legal factual world anymore. Like I just don't accept it. I think that's right. And I think acceptance is the right word. And it's, I would just note, it's acceptance at a fairly high level of generality. You know, people often disagree with the results in particular cases, but they say that, you know, by and large, the legal system does a tolerably good job of figuring out what the truth is and assigning benefits and burdens to people on the basis of that. So we're going to, you know, let ride a few bad results because we think it's basically working. And I think the same thing had always been true about executive power. You know, we think sometimes a president abuses their power, they have too much of it, but we basically get why there's executive power and, and we more or less tolerate it, even if it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama, and you might disagree with them. But with Trump, you know, there, there are ways in which I think Trump is just sui generis, and I, I just don't know how much we can conclude from the Trump administration about anything, really, um, because it's just so odd. It's just it's really disorienting and strange to live in a world where the president says something and you know he's never given it a moment's thought. And it has nothing to do with truth. So, you know, a couple of days ago, he said, uh, you know, there was a report about how civil aviation is safer than it's ever right. been. And he said, that's because I've been really hard on the airlines. Uh, now, I happen to be a bit of an aviation buff, and I can give you a, about a 30-year-long story about why civil aviation is as safe as it is. Uh, it has nothing to do with Trump. <laughs> um, and if you had asked him, you know, what exactly did you do that was hard on the airlines? Did you uh, promulgate rules that adopt a new kind of technology? Or, did, you know, what did you... He did nothing. But he just says stuff. It's he just really says it. remarkable. Yeah. He just says stuff without giving it a moment's thought. And no one believes it has any relationship with the truth. And so it's just this very strange kind of world in which the someone's going through the motions of being a president, but they're not doing the things that presidents have normally done. Wait, does this, you know, in your study of legal ethics, can you think of examples in, the in say, the courtroom where a sense of self-respect and shame fill in a lot of the gaps, even in, you tell, you know, as you describe it, like what used to be more of a norm driven thing is now, you know, replete with rules. We have a lot of rules of legal ethics where maybe there used to be unspoken norms. But I I imagine that even under that somewhat uh, rule thick in, in, in that somewhat rule thick environment, there still are some gaps where we don't think we have to make a rule. I mean, I, I remember I had a friend in college and we, we were on a road trip somewhere and uh, and there was a very um, one of one of the members of our little group was very outgoing and um, and was talking about um, how uh, didn't we all hate that rule? No singing at the table. 
didn't we just hate it? And, you know, when we were young, having that rule, no singing at the table. And, and my other friend, who's much more staid, kind of looks at her and says, we didn't have to have that rule at our house. <laughs> Are like, you saying no singing? No singing. No singing at the table. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you need that rule? <laughs> my wife, who I've ever heard cite that rule, she actually also grew up in a house where no singing at the table was a rule. And they were all in theater and they all sang all the yeah. time. And I'm also, you know, fairly introverted. And I, I met her and I said, excuse me, you have your family... <laughs> singing at the table and now our daughter is this you know extroverted kind of performer and we we also now enforce a no singing at the table rule so there you go well but so so in in some families have to have that rule because of you know people's proclivities and other families don't have to have that rule and i'm wondering in general among lawyers you know even as you know the profession takes its knocks in, from all corners of society most law- you know, lawyers are still people and they're usually intelligent people and they have a certain sense of self-respect and of and of shame and they are susceptible to um uh, kind of inter-social discipline based on those things and, and so, so are there examples where the, where maybe you could think maybe there could be a rule but no one ever breaches it or you know what i mean i think i think that does an enormous amount of work in, in practice and i you know one of the very first things i learned i, I had a great mentor in practice and i was writing a and i also you know, worked at a small enough firm that I had a lot of responsibility as a fairly junior associate. And I was writing something in, I don't know, it was a discovery motion or something. And my mentor said, you can't say that. The judge will be pissed off. And then you'll, the judge will never take you seriously again. You'll blow your credibility. And, you know, one of the things that I learned is that there are a lot of lawyering situations in which you're in a repeat player position with respect to opposing counsel, judges, um, and I, I really learned early on to kind of husband my credibility. And I, I can think of a lot of cases that I worked on where close calls started to go our way because we we didn't make ridiculous assertions and we were pretty reasonable and the other side wasn't. And then when things were close, we we got the calls. Um, and I think it's very true. And you know, there are certainly some smaller communities of lawyers. I remember my, my firm did a lot of maritime work and there's not a huge maritime bar, um, although it's a pretty active area of practice in Seattle. And I was really struck by how discovery works in maritime cases. It works like this. You pick up the phone and you go, hey, X, you know the stuff I need. Send it over. And the other lawyer goes, yeah, OK, I'll send it. No stories, <laughs> yeah. no. It's because it's a small repeat player community. They all know each other. And you're not going to be a jerk because you're going to need the other person's cooperation at some point in the future. And everyone knows that it's an iterated game. Um, you know, the communities in which things are nasty are things in which you don't have repeat player situations, you know, big nationwide practices or you know, out-of-town lawyers coming in and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think shame is right. I think interpersonal standards of reasonableness matter, but also it's just it's an iterated game, and, and most lawyers understand that. For, for Here's an example. In, in a legal ethics world, there's been periodic proposals to require lawyers not to unreasonably disagree, object to a, an extension of time request or something like that. Um, you know, most of the time you can say, can you give me a couple days an extension on this filing? And the other side goes, yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, the the, the rule is difficult to apply because there are times when you might have a reason to object to the extension of time request. And so it's a hard rule to apply. So you just kind of leave it to informal pressures to take care of that problem. Yeah. Well, I ask partly because it seems to me that if you're in a, in any particular domain, and shame and self-respect are doing a lot of the work in 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 helping to create the the factual world around that domain, which is acceptable. And all of a sudden, you get a a, um, a bullshit entrepreneur who comes in who seems to be immune to shame and has no self-respect, as the rest of us would recognize it. And suddenly, you think, well, maybe we should make some rules here because we the the factual world we're creating with this bullshit artist around is not acceptable anymore. So we create a bunch of rules, but. 
And then eventually that person goes away and, and maybe you have a worse system. You know, the norm driven system may have been the much better system. And so I have in mind here, right, the, the legal world which changes in response to Trump. It may be necessary to save us from some of the most egregious possible outcomes, but maybe it's a, we're a much worse legal system for it. And this is just, a, I guess, another version of the people who've been asking about, like, you know, even when Trump is gone, uh, the, the, you know, the, the problems of this presidency uh, will persist. I know that's a slightly political point, but I'm trying to make a more specific point that if we, if we really do think that one of the issues with this presidency is a, is, is a, is a very casual sense of, of truth, if, if one at all, then um, changing law to take account of that may, may make for a much worse body of law going forward. I think that that may be right. And I, I wonder, and this is something I don't really know, but I wonder how much existing tools are just being used in a pretty straightforward way to deal with Trumpian problems versus we're creating new tools. That's one reason I think the Supreme Court is going to go with a kind of objective standard on the Kleindienst thing on the travel ban litigation. And I, I would be okay with that, actually. And I think there probably is a you know, facially legitimate reason that could be given here if it was cooked up by the National Security Council and DHS and, and lawyers. Um, and that doesn't strike me as a terrible injustice. I, I do think you're right that if we overreact to Trump, if legal institutions overreact to Trump, we might have all sorts of uh, relatively rigid categorical rules that are going to make it difficult for someone to operate in a more norm-respecting environment. I'm not enough of a public law expert to really know how much um, things are going to change. A- another example that just came up is the you know this decision by EPA and Scott Pruitt to exempt Florida from the opening of coastal waters to drilling. And you know what little I know about public law, I said, gee whiz, isn't that arbitrary and capricious that one state that happens to be a swing state and a Republican governor, uh, they get this exemption, but California and you know New York don't. Huh, that sounds like an APA problem to me. Um, so if it just goes off on an APA uh, application, then that's not really changing anything. It's just saying this is a paradigmatic case of arbitrary and capricious action. Um, but if courts start fashioning new law to deal with Trump, then I, you know, I think there may be I think your concern may may be right on, but I I wonder whether they're going to need to do that. I just want, I just want to talk about just the travel ban thing. Maybe take a little bit of issue because, you know, if you think th- there are people whose lives are going to be severely affected by this by you know I always call it a Muslim ban because it essentially yeah, yeah, is sure. a, a Muslim ban and and yeah. and you know th- it's going to cause you know maybe not widespread suffering because it's restricted to a few countries but relatively severe suffering among some families and some some people. Um, even as it's been softened to allow, you know, under the Supreme Court. Well, like, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see how it eventually eventually comes out. And one weapon that people who are going to end up on, again, the sharp side of the government stick uh, uh, for these kinds of things have is is to ask at a very basic level, is this, you know, is there any truth whatsoever? Is this a transparent lie? Is this a transparent um, violation of, of my right to equal treatment based on my religion or my... Uh, um, uh, or, or my race, and you cite cases that that have come up before, but but you know we haven't really dealt with such transparent, I think, discrimination, where this this, um, this suffering is going to be due. We all know what it's due to. It is due to a campaign promise, which whatever his intention, again, you know, bullshit. So who knows, right? Whatever his intention, we know that it was meant to appeal um, to kind of the discriminatory biases of uh, uh, of people who were like scared of Muslims and. Yeah, that, you know that does seem like a you know it's 
I don't, I don't know. No, I agree with you. But, you know, that case isn't coming up in a vacuum. And post 9-11, the George W. Bush and then Obama administration continued some of these policies, you know, enacted a bunch of entry restrictions and travel ban type orders. There's a thing called NSEERS, which yeah, is uh, yeah. very similar to that. And and it wasn't quite so transparently in order to fulfill a campaign promise to beat up on Muslims, but it, it seemed to me to be anti-Muslim hysteria following 9-11 was primarily what was in the driver's seat. Um, I always find interesting these travel bans based on terrorism that leave out countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Egypt, which yeah. are you know, conceitedly important allies, but also, you know, <laughs> major world sponsors of terrorism. Yeah, I mean, it's struck me as an overreaction based on what I know. And of course, you know, this is this is part of being on the outside of the national security apparatus. You just don't right. know everything. But it seemed to me an overreaction, whereas the, the Trump travel ban seems to me to be about like, I'm going to satisfy your wish to see me smash people who yeah. you're scared of. Right. And that doesn't seem to like in Sears, you, there seems to me a, a real difference between an overreaction where, where you might credit the president's truth, right, despite the fact that you disagree about the degree of reaction and this kind of, you know, um, uh, paper thin excuse for what you know is a t- is a qualitatively illegitimate motive. But yeah, sorry, I, I want to follow up on t- on two yeah. points. W- one, with respect to um, the uh, travel ban, Muslim ban, whatever you want to call it, um, the the reason that I, I think another reason to to suspect that that. Christian, you're right. We, we're going to have to reckon in some way with the total, the sum total of the evidence and what it tells us about people's motives uh, is, I think, another important aspect of being committed to uh, important conceptions uh, of the truth uh, and truthfulness, uh, and that is recognizing this thing called pretext, right? We, we under, we're, we're complex enough to understand that some people might, in an opportunistic way, try to take advantage of the need for reasons and public regarding reasons to engage in putting on a pretext. And we, we also know we need to not get taken in by them, right? That there's, it's important that we have the capability to see through them. And I, and I think the, Supreme, the, Ju- the Giuliani thing, right? They're like where he tells Giuliani, I want you to do a Muslim ban. Well, do well that's part of it. Like, but the other thing I had in mind was the, the fact that in the, in the, in, um, I can't remember now whether it was out of Texas or, but one of these uh, state, uh, trap laws, uh, relevant to abortion clinics and the notion that this stuff is, oh, it's, it's there to protect the health of the people who are using these clinics. And you can show it doesn't, it actually, it actually doesn't protect health at all, right? It's, it's a pretext for trying to make this uh, stuff less available to people who want it because you object to its existence. Um, and my sense is the Supreme Court kind of saw through the protectual nature of some of those restrictions. This whole women's health, I think. Um, yeah. And that surprised some people, right? You could make the argument, well, as long as there's a, a facially neutral, blah, 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 but like, yes, and if if we're going to get taken in by pretext, a lot of this isn't going to be <laughs> just going to shut it down. This all goes back to Lochner and Caroline products and where when and, and our criteria for deciding when the court is going to look for pretext and be more suspicious. Yeah. Right? And, it, and it's important. I, I, I'm just trying to make the point that being open to the idea that uh, that in that an assertion is pretextual is actually part and parcel of being committed to truthfulness. Because we have to appreciate that people try to engage in successfully uh, using a pretext. The other thing I wanted to follow up on was on the APA point. 
Um, and a whole nother example that I think we could spend time talking about um, if we were just starting the, the, the session now, we could have gone in a completely non-Trump direction. But but that has some interesting characteristics to it, right, which is the recent um, – the FCC uh, uh, repeal of net neutrality, the open internet order, right? So the, the FCC has recently entered this – a new initiative to, to undo – the net neutrality order, and a huge amount of the public input through internet and other channels, right, to give public comment in a notice and comment uh, regime, right, a lot of it turns out to have been bots and a bunch of other crazy nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the notice and comment process in a world where people want to use things like email and, and Twitter and other ways of collecting public comment is going to have to reckon with the fact that there are people just funneling huge amounts of the equivalent of, of you know, waste into that <laughs> system, right? Mm-hmm. They're just jamming it full of junk. Um, we have to figure out a way to reckon with that because it's a direct – because to ignore it is to, is to, to say, well, the truth doesn't matter here, right? When it obviously does matter. Um, do you, have you thought about, um, Brad, the, the things of the way that notice and comment is changing in ways that might make it harder for administrative agencies to discern what, what the truth really is in the public? I haven't thought about that. My, my colleague, a few doors down, uh, Cynthia Farina has, she's been working on a project for a number of years on e-rulemaking. Um, and I assume has thought about the bots and, and things like that. So I, I have not, and again, I'm not much of a public lawyer at all. Um, but I do think this distinction between pretext and what I'm going to call mixed motive lawmaking is really interesting and important. And I think you're right that we could imagine a paradigm case where some law is justified um, on a purely pretextual basis. And maybe those abortion clinic restrictions are, you know, the idea that doctors have to have admitting privileges and stuff like that um, really was, you know, ostensibly to protect women's health, but but clearly just a way of burdening women's right to an abortion. And I think the way you prove that is not so much by trying to psychoanalyze the lawmakers, because goodness only knows what their motives are, but by <laughs> looking at other measures that are in legislation to protect women's health, other conditions that are placed on other types of clinics. I mean, presumably there are all sorts of surgical clinics for all sorts of things all over the state of Texas. There are, you know, places you can get, uh, you know, Botox injections or whatever. And uh, are there similar kinds of restrictions based on uh, placed on those kinds of clinics? If the answer is no, then it's more clearly pretextual. Um, but, you know, we get mixed motive lawmaking all the time. This new tax, uh, you know, tax cut on corporations bill uh, allegedly to raise revenue eliminated the deductibility of state and local taxes. But, you know, many people see it as just a way of screwing blue states. That's certainly how it's perceived here in New York. <laughs> of course, there's a long-standing debate about whether you look at the actual subjective intent of legislatures or look at some kind of hypothetical intent. Now, I don't know what Paul Ryan and uh, Mitch McConnell and those folks intended. I don't. I don't know if they sat around going, "Let's really stick it to California." Um, but certainly, that is a side effect of the tax bill. Uh, is it an intended side effect? I don't know. Um, but I think courts just see themselves as one of these, you know. Um, political question kind of problems, courts have a hard time figuring out whether it's an improper motive or whether it, or not. So they tend to back away from those questions. I don't know those abortion cases well enough to know whether they went off on pretext or whether they said this is a, you know, a substantial burden. Um, but I think that is a good example and close to the paradigm of a truly pretextual law. Well, I mean, it was a substantial burden, but part, part, of, part of what's going on there, right, is that the 
the justifications didn't stand up to scrutiny, right? right? And so, I mean, the, the whole scrutiny paradigm is built around trying to ferret out a kind of truth, but in an environment where generally you want democracy to work on its own truth, right? And and the court steps in when, right. you know, this is the old Caroline products. And, theory, and again, right? the, the problem with Klein, uh, not problem, but the challenge if you're using Kleindienst against Mandela as a framework is to say, okay, um, it, you know, facially, uh, facially neutral, legitimate reason, uh, you know, good faith reason. Um, what if you have every reason to believe that there's a, that it's pretextual, right? You, do you ignore that? Do you not ignore it? What, you know, it's a national security issue, an immigration issue. Those are issues where the executive normally gets deference. But, uh, at the same time, if the pretext, issue makes you think there's some there's a possibility of of invidious discrimination on the basis of religious faith that's a huge problem uh under equally venerable constitutional tradition that we have so it's like you, it sound, it's, just ignoring that doesn't sound quite right either um uh, figuring out where to fit pretext into your thinking about about that issue i, I it seems quite significant to me yeah i think you know here with with you know back to the travel ban stuff Something I wrote about just briefly over the summer was the ethics of people serving in government under Trump. You know, we tend to focus on Trump, but there are an awful lot of people in the Trump administration that presumably have their own ethical issues to think about. And so as part of defending the travel ban order, you're going to have to get testimony from the head of DHS and the FBI and the national security apparatus and all sorts of people. And I I, I think it was the second or third order, I forget which, in which there really was all this testimony. And I think those folks have to ask exactly the question that you just asked, which is, do I believe that this is purely pretextual or do I think that this national security justification is is bona fide? Um, and everyone's got to run through this question. It's not hypothetical and it's not just for reviewing courts. It's for the DHS secretary who are they going to sign that affidavit or not? And boy, I would not want to be in that position. Now, again, they, as you said earlier, I don't have access to all the information that they have. You know, they, they may know there are specific incredible threats coming out of the, these seven countries. Um, or maybe the intelligence has been shaped in such a way by staff or by political appointees to make it look like these are the seven most dangerous countries. I don't know. Um, but they're going to have to do exactly what you just suggested and go through that process and say, do I believe this to be in good faith? Uh, or am I being used? Am I being manipulated in service of uh, bigotry? and a campaign promise. That's that's a big dilemma. <laughs> Bigotry, a campaign promise, and um, a, a, a person who just doesn't like to be viewed as ha, as being wrong or silly or... or Indecisive, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, just sort of vanity. I mean, right. pure and simple vanity. Those kinds of characteristics, generalized characteristics of a person, a person's personality, that's... An, a court would be very uncomfortable taking that into account. I mean, the, the closest that you see to that are... Right courts which cite these tweets, right? And, and by citing the tweets and by putting them in the opinion, the, each tweet they put in there is relevant, like it speaks to the Muslim question in particular, right? right. But, but there's almost like a secondary message there about, yeah, this is that guy, right? The guy who does this kind of thing. We all know what we're talking about here. Right, and we've now been in this situation long enough that it's not, we're, we're not even dealing anymore with the, with the, the question about uh, are his statements um, as, as, uh, uh, as a candidate Versus his statements as the president, right? Um, we, you know, he's been the president for for approaching a year, and so there are plenty of statements as president that you can adduce in a proceeding to say, "Yeah, this guy." Right. <laughs> That's right. Like, obviously, the ACLU litigation strategy is to make him look erratic and unreliable, and so, you know, heaven forbid, if I were a 
uh, DOJ, you know, civil division or whoever's handling this litigation lawyer, what I would do is just counter that with a ton of evidence having nothing to do with Trump's whims uh, about what various national security professionals try to find some career staff, people who aren't political appointees, um, what, what they think. And and I think that's what really is going to end up having to happen is that we find a, a method of review that doesn't look, doesn't try to peek behind the curtain into the psychology of a decision maker, but just looks at the balance of considerations and reasons and says, you know, could, it's a, it's a counterfactual, could a reasonable person conclude that these seven nations, you know, pose a, a national security threat and we should, uh, you know, engage in extreme vetting, whatever the hell that means. Um, but it's, it's counterfactual. I, I think we're not going to go all the way toward a purely subjective standard. So let me wind up by just asking if, if you think that maybe we've reached a kind of crisis point. Here's what I have in mind. Like if we think in of the of all three branches of our government as kind of jointly with the people embarked on a project of kind of creating and constantly amending an official account of fact and an official account of value. Like and it's always shifting, right? Every Congress that comes in uh, points us toward new values, gathers new evidence, legislates on the basis of new facts. But then together with the the courts, right, because the courts are uh, have other values in mind and, and, and the, the technique of strict scrutiny and intermediate scrutiny are ways of or hard look doctrine. These are ways of working, working accounts free of problems, right, working accounts in a direction toward acceptability. So the outcome of all of these branches working together is like our official account, like I said, of a fact and value which we can accept. And the reason we can accept them is because courts kind of uh, keep political branches within certain rails and the political branches are subject to democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not saying anything original by this other than maybe by the, the framing in terms of these official accounts inspired by, uh, by your work here. And maybe the crisis point is that um, – and this is just another way of saying what others have said about the, about the role of norms in our society, right? The role of norms of typical human shame and self-respect in terms of keeping people – on their toes about some sort of responsibility to the truth. And, and, and now, you know, maybe we're under assault by the shameless. Um, and, and the counter move is also to be shameless. And, and maybe a people only survive as a, as a people, as a unified people, if they are able to author these jointly acceptable accounts of fact and value. Like even if, even if I don't think, for example, in the 1980s, that, our biggest interest is in um, running, um, basically running governments in Central and South America um, and keeping them free of communism. Like, I can maybe get on board with the whole thing because, uh, you know, I'm, I may win next time. And at least I believe that you think that's important and it's something we can disagree about. Whereas if the question is, should we have slaves or not, right? That's, those are incommensurable values. We're never going to be able to jointly author together an account of value that incorporates your belief that we should have slaves and my belief that we shouldn't, right? So too, we're not going to be able to get on board with an account which says, no, the president in due course is adopting these travel bans uh, precisely because he correctly thinks, or at least he legitimately thinks that there is a unique threat from these particular countries. I'm just, you know, maybe that's not enough to get me um, uh, to jettison the entire project, but it certainly is a stressor, right, uh, of, of feeling unified with the rest of the country. I, I'm so I'm, I'm I tend to be kind of temperamentally an optimist, and I also like to read people who make me feel better and not 
make me feel worse. <laughs> so well, you can you can ignore everything I just said. Then right? <laughs> there are certain bloggers that I don't read, even though I may agree with them politically, because they kind of get me wound up. And there are certain bloggers who tell me basically everything is fine. Calm down. Um, and and the people I've been reading a lot lately, and you probably have had some of them on your your podcast, is are, are the lawfare crowd, uh, like Ben Wittes and Jack Goldsmith and and those folks. And you know what what they keep alluding to is that there may be a point at which it's you, you'll find out who is capable of being shamed. Um, and there are certain actions the government would take which would cause an exodus of all of the people who are necessary to make the government function. Um, somebody I was reading just recently, I, I don't know, maybe Kevin Drum or someone like that that I like to read, um, was saying, you know, unlike Mussolini, Trump doesn't have the capability of controlling the organs of government and bending them to his will. He's just too incompetent. And he's too erratic and too undisciplined to do that. And you know, we do have a very big, complicated apparatus of government staffed by a lot of dedicated career public servants and lawyers and, and people who are not just political hacks. I mean, there are certainly some of those, but um, there are an awful lot of people who are not going to be complicit in massive injustice, I think. Um, but I'm kind of temperamentally an optimist. And, you know, what Wittes and, and uh, Jack Goldsmith and those folks are saying is you could imagine something that Trump does, let's just say with respect to the Mueller investigation, um, which would result in the massive resignation of the entire top tier of, of Justice Department lawyers. Um, and the, the realization that that would happen is one of the things keeping him in check. And so in addition to the standard tripartite separation of powers analysis that you gave, there's also intra-branch checking. And, and there, there may be uh, things holding the, this on the rails that we don't really um, realize uh, you know, Trump may want to do what, what what he wants, but he's not going to be able to do it unless he can bend the government to his will. And he's just too undisciplined to be able to do that. Hmm. I, I don't feel like saying anything else after that optimistic take that the, <laughs> that the president is so undisciplined that we are going to we are in safe hands. <laughs> it's, it's, it's malevolence tempered by incompetence. Right, and I right. think that's been the tension of the entire Trump administration. Well, this is this has been very enlightening and, and the papers enlightening. I, I would have liked to have talked about the Sally Yates paper as well. I think there's a lot to think about uh, there. I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes, even though we didn't really get to it. Um, as, as someone who, who teaches working and thinks a lot about um, that, I, uh, I found it really illuminating. So thank you for that piece as well. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This was fun.